Today's show is being brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, believers in good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, this is your host, Dana Cowan. Welcome to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network, a show where brilliant women in the food world share stories about their lives and careers, successes, and challenges. Today, my guest is Lynette Moraro. I've long been an admirer of her exceptional mixology talent. Now she's at Lama Inn, so you can go visit, taste those amazing cocktails. She's a consultant, and she's also a co-founder of Speedrack, which is a national all-female co- cocktail competition that's now in, is it 11 cities? Uh, we do uh, eight, cities, eight uh, cities nationally in the U.S., and then we are in three international markets. Okay, so <laughs> the, my math is good. Math is good. <laughs> my geography is bad, which actually reflects my entire educational history. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing Lynette talk about how she's stayed true to herself and found her voice in this extraordinarily male-dominated industry that is the cocktail world. When bartenders kind of became mixologists, essentially gentrifying the corner bar and all other bars, the prevailing culture was really one that celebrated men with vests, those who had fabulous mustaches, and quite large and attractive arms. I'm wondering... Is that your sense? Is that what it was like when you were drawn into the business? And uh, what can you tell me about what made you so intrigued? Well, um, I was really lucky to get into this industry um, in New York, where the cocktail renaissance that we see today really started percolating. Um, we had it in London, but New York was kind of, you know, uh, ground zero for. Uh, the U.S. cocktail scene. You had people such as Dale DeGroff, who is the modern father of cocktails for us here. Um, and he's a so New York So is he native. still uh, making cocktails regularly when you were... Dale DeGroff, at the time when I started bartending, he was not in the Rainbow Room anymore, which is the yeah. bar that really made him famous. Um, and he had done a few other bars in New York, bringing fresh juice and all these things in the 90s when that was not the status quo. And in the early 2000s, uh, mentor, people he had mentored, Audrey Saunders and um, Sasha Petrosky, were leading the charge. Um, I started uh, working in the cocktail bar scene in 2004. So it was still in its infancy. Milk and Honey opened uh, 99, 2000. And you had um, the Flatiron Lounge, which is where I got my start, opened in 2003. So there were just a handful of places place called Jennifer Sweet. There were these bars, most of the hotel bars. A few of them had some good programs going. And um, I just had this incredible opportunity to meet these people because there was not many cocktail bars. So working at Flatiron Lounge, I was meeting Dale DeGroff. I was meeting Audrey Saunders. I was meeting everyone who had touched the modern cocktail movement. And it was more diverse. Uh, the bar that I started in was owned and is owned by three women, Julie Reiner, uh, her wife, Susan Fedroff, and Michelle Connolly. So you had a very extraordinary presence that was um, based upon the hard work you're willing to put in. At the time, you know, everyone could make really great money working in club bars, and you would serve, you know, yeah, you serve thousands of drinks, but you'd be using very light ice. You'd be pouring one-on-ones, but... Okay, you got to go back. <laughs> what's light ice, and what's a one-on-one? Well, I guess if people uh, see now those modern cocktail trays of ice that you can get where the, you have that beautifully solid square cube that is more... Um, that's closer to the ice we use in bars called cold draft or hojizaki. We use those cubes. Uh, whereas chip ice or those flat pieces of ice, you know, the easy stuff you crack that you see kind of become water in a minute, you can throw that in a mixing glass, go, and it's done. 
drink done with the bigger ice you're shaking 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 and laboriously waiting to hear the sound of the ice change to know that enough of it has cracked into the drink to add enough water to then give you this beautiful product so it's it's a really laborious task and you had to love it um you had to really really love it because you made about you know 50% 50% less than you did if you're working at a club bar. <laughs> right, so it's the it's the artiste version of um, bartending. Absolutely. Because you're you're doing something craft and that takes um, takes a lot of care and takes an enormous amount of knowledge about ice. It does. I mean, there are theses written about ice, but I think the the best part about the opportunity I had at the time was anyone could start in these bars if you're willing to work hard. So uh, people who are really good friends of mine, Phil Ward, who is the owner of Maya Well, and some would say the biggest tequila mezcal proponent um, of modern bartenders, uh, he started as a busser in Flatiron, just kind of came, was passing through, didn't have enough money to get back to Pittsburgh, started bussing tables and worked his way up to barback to bartender. And I started as a cocktail waitress because I really wanted to work in this bar. I had seen it and I'd seen what Julie was doing and I stalked her for about a year to get a job there. Wow. So what did that entail? Because I love stories of, you know, how you got that first job. So you stalked her. What does that mean? I, um, every Thursday night, I was actually working cross town at another martini lounge at the time. So this was Everything was a teeny. Everything was, you know, uh, and it was a great bar called Sabar, a cigar bar, essentially. And, you know, we had things that were like graham cracker martinis and chocolate martinis. That was my exposure to what a cocktail was. Um, and I think it I've was, missed the graham cracker martini. <laughs> that sounds dicey to me. It's a little dicey. Um, but after work, um, the bartender who I was working with, Amber, who had started teaching me a bit of, of bartending, she and I would close down and we found the Flatiron Lounge, which is across the way. And we'd go in there and you'd walk in and you'd go down the beautiful tunnel and there's this art deco light glowing and this beautiful old art deco bar that they rescued. And then these super tall glamazon women behind the bar <laughs> and the drinks were as beautiful as the space. They were fresh juices and beautiful orchids and all these flavors that were natural and beautiful. And Julie was pulling at that time um, from her experience in Hawaii and growing up in Hawaii. So beautiful tropical drinks and things that really resonated. So they were a beautiful introduction to what a really well-crafted cocktail could be, the visual stunningness of it and how much the fresh ingredients changed the experience. So we went in every week, every week, um, and... I left for a bit to go do a show down in D.C. and get married. Uh, And then when I came back, it was an opportunity. There was a call, and I walked in with my resume, and I was like, I'd love to work here. (laughs) And I got the job. And what do you think are the the qualities that make a great mixologist? Like in the case, in Julie's case, she had a lot to draw on. She it was her culture, um, her visual sensibility. Uh, What do you think it takes? I think um, to be a really good mixologist, I think it takes having a voice, um, a strong voice. So in Julie's, as we said, she had a strong voice. Philip Ward, he had a strong voice and really wanted to play around with these spirits, like bringing agave spirits forward, which at that time, now it's so trendy that people are drinking tequila as if it was vodka back then. <laughs> um, but to you have to have a passion and a voice, and whether that is um, elevating the service, so mm-hmm. if you're not necessarily innovating the way, the kinds of drinks, but you want to make superior classics or elevate their service, I think that's what makes someone really good at this. Um, and I think loving to create that is part of it um i personally love cooking so it's that's the natural uh, connection i used to i'm one of the i'm one of four girls in my family and i'm the one who really picked up the cooking skills from my mom and and i love the flavor balances the subtles of subtlety of things so i think it's tasting learning um a lot of people can learn to be very proficient um you can learn out of classic cocktails but i think that what sets you apart is having that little little intuition of so Subtlety. what, um, how do you describe your voice and where does your passion lie? So uh, this is a funny question. I love, I uh, love when people ask that cause you don't really notice your own style until you start realizing, Oh wait, that's totally my style. And I didn't <laughs> even realize it. Um, I managed to be, uh, defined a lot by rum cocktails. Um, but I think when you really break it out of spirit base, um, my cocktails tend to be uh, very, the flavor build. 
cocktails. And I tend to draw on and what does that mean? floral aromatics. Uh, so taking lots of different um, ingredients, putting them together to have this wonderful balance. I think I've, so you'll look at a drink that I'll make and maybe I'm drawing from culinary ingredients or I'm using a lot of teas or um, floral aromas and things that at first seem like they don't fit. Uh, but then they do. They all come together. And I, I tend to have a very um, light, subtle palette. So for me, I can make you really dark brown stirred drinks, but I tend to have really light, even if it's a brown spirit, light, refreshing, um, sort of bright personality cocktails. Uh-huh. So maybe it reflects <laughs> who I am, but exactly. that's kind of the, the way I love it. I love that that refreshment, I guess, point of cocktails. It's sort of like a, a snapshot of you, except <laughs> it's in a glass. <laughs> exactly. And now as I've moved further on into restaurant world um, and working with, with Eric Ramirez at the Llama Inn, really exploring new flavors, new culinary ingredients that inspire and push you forward because tasting new things is so cool. And then you're like, well, it sort of reminds me of, of this spirit. And if I use this food ingredient, this weird mint from Peru, and I pair it with with this other ingredient and then you start moving from there and it's pretty great. So the Llama Inn is uh, Peruvian food. It is. And you're doing the cocktail program there. I know that your connection with the chef is so strong. Do you do the cocktails together? Do you uh, come up with them yourself and then you taste them? How does that work? So the process um, for us at Llama Inn uh, pretty much was started with uh, Jessica Gonzalez and I did the opening menu um, and she came from the Nomad. uh, So she was already had been working with chefs, so we kind of approached it from the same way of listen to what Eric's concept for the food was, where he wanted to go. And from that, we we drew that his experience working in um, Love Madison Park and really classically trained restaurants was very much like our experience in classically trained bars. But then to take it the next the next step, which is to add the personality and flair of the region and the culture that we're we're expressing here, which is Peru and, and all those beautiful ingredients. So we, we looked at everything. He told us about some ingredients that we didn't know. Chicha Morada, which is a purple corn drink mm. that he had this great recipe from his grandmother. And we tasted um, different purees and different fruits and, and mints. And then we took those ingredients and went to a classic cocktail look and made a menu that fit a classic menu style, infusing it with these cool ingredients and piscos, which are, you know, the brandies that come from um, Peru. And we then presented a menu to to Eric and the owner, and they tasted it and would give us a little feedback, and then we'd net out, and, and we'd either talk about the drink, why we chose the decisions we had, uh, what why each ingredient went together, and, and it was really great. So we just concepted a lot of the ingredients, and then we built the menu and and then it just kind of took off. <laughs> Sometimes you will see a cocktail program that seems seamless. I think that's the best that you can do in a restaurant where they aren't separate, you know, two separate, talking on voices about two separate voices. Your role in the industry is so important. And I want to talk about, as a woman in this business, do you feel that has impacted the way that you um, present cocktails, the way that you are in this world? Uh, I think I am absolutely defined by being a woman, a strong woman, a Hispanic woman. All those elements absolutely affect how I'm perceived and how I interact within this community. And it took me a long time to realize that that's super important to me. And that's part of a huge part of my identity. I grew up with all sisters at home. Um, and so my, you know, father had only daughters. So <laughs> there was no, like the, the man of the house, my, my dad. And then the rest was all strong personality women. And, um, I realized what that affects in my life is a collaboration. I'm, I really enjoy collaborating with people in this space and in hospitality. I don't have this. It's mine. It's ours. And that really influences a lot of the decisions I make and how I work with people. Um, And then there is a nurturing part that comes from it. You know, I have a little sister and I have older sisters, so I'm like right in the middle. And I find that nurturing people is something I really value. I really enjoy um, mentoring and and raising people up with you. I think that's a really important um, factor. And I think when we talk about women in business in general, um, 
in the old days, it was really hard to bring other women with you because there were so few at the top, and, and I, I think it was more competitive. But what we've seen with Speed Rack and just in our community in general is that, you know, all ships raise all tides or the tides raise all <laughs> ships or whatever the expression is. But it, the truth is, if you, um, the more people that you bring into the community that are not represented, the more people will now be represented by that group. And that ha- goes for any sort of diversity. And so I love being, you know, now mama too. And I have older guy bartenders who call me mama. <laughs> so there's a, a bit of that sort of, um, personality trait that I have but I love I love 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 bringing new people in and and caring about the whole experience and the people who you work with because I think that's what makes work valuable and makes it for me at least satisfying I, I think you also have a sort of a more a, emotional approach sometimes than <laughs> your male, male counterparts might be accustomed to is that a, a challenge is that a opportunity uh guilty as charged i am uh we we had this conversation um over the past year uh we've been doing these uh projects called the sisterhood project with our speed rack and after each event we do uh, a sit down with groups and it's men and women coming together to talk about women's issues what affects us in our lives and and a conversation in one of these uh sisterhood projects i was just guilty as charged i was like i'm really emotional and this is how it is and this is how i deal with business i you know i have that passion and that passion can sometimes get to a point of being, you know, a little, I had to learn how to control how much of the emotion I let out. Um, but it's okay to show that passion. I guess it's, it's changing it from passion to being emotional and, and losing control of the emotions. But it's like, you know, we, we talked about, uh, in one of the sessions, just kind of like going into the walk-in, doing a little yoga stretch, <laughs> <laughs> yelling, and then going back to service if you need to, <laughs> like finding those moments where you can let it out. Um, but I think, I think in the beginning of my career, I felt that I never could hide my emotions. So I think it taught me there were moments where I let my emotions get the best of me and my message wasn't being heard because Mm -hmm. on the outside I was falling apart, but what I was saying was really important, poignant and intelligent, but it just wasn't (laughs) being heard because I was physically falling apart. So one of my, um, really dear friends and, and male bartenders who I was talking to at the time, we were working together on a project, Brian Miller, um, he's over at ZZ's clam bar now and he's opening a new bar soon. (laughs) Um, but he, he was one of the people and he's, you know, my senior and he's just like, you are always so right he's like, you just have to hold it in for a minute and get your message a point. And then we'll go outside. And like, if you need to like cry, it's, you know, it's like my thing is I, I get that emotional release that way. I'm not an aggressive person. So some people might go to like wanting to punch a wall. I'm like, Oh, I'm just going to go cry here for five minutes and then I'll be fine. Now let's get back to business. And I'm going (laughs) to, so you found, you found a way to sort of control the, uh, the visuals of the emotion, which is being weepy, um, (laughs) because you knew you were right. Yes. It's just the passion of like, just that you get to this point. And I think what was really interesting was early on in this industry, um, when we started growing, when it started not being just a couple bars and the expansion, I think any industry has us. Once you start growing, there's more challenges and maybe we're not all face equipped to deal with them. So specifically in the restaurant bar space, I think it was really challenging uh, for some chefs to understand the that we would work together as that we're not that there's no real front of house, no back of house. There's just the restaurant and this and how it works together is the most wonderful, cohesive thing. And so that was a bit harder for me to to understand that relationship. And um, it was something I needed to learn about. I need to pick my boyfriends better and decide, <laughs> decide which, which relationships I wanted to get involved with. And I think that was part of that learning curve for me. Um, but I still believed in it and I still wanted to keep going forward. So if, if it didn't work out one time, like I'm not gonna be bitter, I'll try it again. Let's, let's keep going. And that's, and I'm happy that I've approached my career that way. So Jim Meehan, had said that he likes to have both a man and a woman behind the bar because they are different personalities. Do you agree with that point of view? Is it important to have both represented? I, I do believe that it's it's the most the most wonderful places of work, especially in something as hospitality. The more people that are diverse bring more to the table. We're, it's such about personalities, and, it, and it's true. Your the service behind a bar, um, and the dynamic you have is going to change by the people. And you know, I think it is a great balance to have men, women, 
Um, you should definitely have, you know, multiracial bartenders and uh, people from the LGBTQ community because it's a whole different um, synergy and working all together. It's it's this vibrant amazing little social experiment that actually really reflects the world that we're in. And I think that's what people enjoy when they go out to have a cocktail or for a dining experience is that, and we're in New York, so New York tends to be a lot more of going out and eating. So you're, you're, it's a social network as well. So I think that that's why you really want to see more people there. And I, and I do respect when Jim talks about that, um, He's always had, had a nice balance in his bars of, of men and women working. I think you see the, the way mentorship travels through that system really well. And it's and I, I think it's a great environment. I love, you know, working with guys. As I said, most of my business partners have been men um, until I partnered with Ivy on Speedrack and recently have worked on consulting with, with women and bars. But that's just of where I'm at right now, but not an intentional choice. I think it's interesting how you describe the diversity that you would want behind the bar because are, are you thinking that the people who come to the bar, they want to see themselves reflected also behind the bar because it's a voice and you're having a conversation whether it's, you know, you want to hear different voices, you want to hear it's sort of symphonic as, a, as opposed to... Absolutely. I think that's exactly it. And especially when you sit at the bar, that's you're vulnerable um, and if you don't want to be sitting there just lost in your phone and you want to have a conversation with somebody, I think that's where um, that really comes in play. And that idea of hospitality, which we really see coming back, is about that guest experience. And I think that as owners and operators, we should be thinking about that. Let's talk about Speed Rack a little bit. <laughs> it is an extraordinary all-female cocktail competition that you and Ivy Mix had this gigantic brainstorm and came up with. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about the Speed Rack and the uh, the idea behind it? Sure. So um, Speed Rack, uh, as you said, is this all-women's bartending competition. Um, and we raise a lot of money for breast cancer research education. We've done a lot of work to figure out the right ways to tackle um, that issue and that health problem. Um, but what Speedrack is at its at its simplest is a celebration of our community and hospitality, um, giving any voice that may be underrepresented or unheard a platform. And and our platform here is the women in our industry um, and. We started it, um, Ivy Mix, I met her back in 2009, and she was new to New York City, had just come back from living and bartending all over Guatemala, and, you know, she knew how to bartend, but she was having a hard time getting a job as a cocktail bartender, Um, very much, had the talent, skill sets, knew a ton about um, agave spirits, so she was having a hard time getting a job and getting the opportunity to learn this craft, um, even though she had tons of bartending experience. And I had started uh, the New York City chapter of LUPEC, which is Ladies United for the Preservation of Endangered Cocktails, because um, I had met the previous summer the group of ladies from Boston who started their chapter. And I saw what they were doing, and all of their events were about using cocktails to raise money for women's charities. And I thought that was really great. Um, but at the same time, I thought I could also use that platform to showcase women bartenders who and in women in our industry and trade and hospitality who just were not necessarily being represented. So we would do a lot of charity events and I'd have all the ladies bartending and I asked Ivy to join and we realized at some point that there were so many more women than we all thought mm-hmm. in the community but they just didn't have this platform. So you know, Ivy is like, all right, well, we need to make a platform. So we, <laughs> so she's like, hey, I've got this idea. Um, it's called Speed Rack, and I don't know, it's a cocktail competition of some sort, and we should raise money for breast cancer because, you know, we could either go the tongue-in-cheek way and start something that's spoofing, uh-huh. you know, be like, oh, lady shaking, double shaking, woo, or we can actually take it seriously. And so she, she's like, let's do this serious thing. And... We, you know, reached out to our, our friends and partners and anyone we could get to, to help us with the first event. And the first event we did um, was in June 2011. 
and we had no idea what to do. I am a huge fan of food TV shows, so I was like, okay, so we like kind of <laughs> take like the the chopped platform, and we'll have four drinks, and we'll have these judges, and someone will be Simon Cowell, and we'll have all these people, and it's gonna be great. And we we started that event, and we were lucky to have wonderful people like Audrey Saunders, Julie Reiner, Dale DeGroff volunteer their time to judge for us and be That's like, hey, great. sure, we'll come in and um, judge for you. Jordana Rothman was one of the first people who's now um, at Food and & Wine, and, and she was, you know, we had this group of people who were like, we have no idea what this is, but I'm sure we're going to do it. And we had these women, and we had the stage, and we had these dueling cocktail bars, and we just threw four drink rounds at them, and they would prepare four drinks at a time as fast as they could, and then the judges would taste them and add penalty seconds. And oh my gosh. It was just like crazy. <laughs> Easy. Race against the clock. Race against the clock, but it felt the room felt. I I like to call it the roller derby of cocktail competitions because it does have that like strong, fierce, feminine, crazy. You don't know what's going to happen. Passion and everyone's very strong, and but it's also you get wrapped up in what's going on. And the the girl who won that year. Uh, was Yale Van Groff, who is now the beverage director and head bartender at the Spare Room in L.A. And she's, you know, it's so great to see where her career has gone from now. But, you know, at that point, she just was this wickedly fast bartender who <laughs> had, was working in cocktail bars. And, and it was great. We just did this event and decided to take it around the country. Um, so and now we've had over over 50 competitions, over 750 women compete over over half a million dollars raised uh, so that's it's a and a community has started so what's great is now we have this huge network of women all over the world who you know support each other you know even though they're competing there's like they are clapping for each other watching each other hugging and embracing after a crazy round high-fiving and that community and that kind of camaraderie is the best thing that I could have hoped ever that that this would turn into. I think that connecting and making people feel like not that they're like sadly alone, but they're not alone, you know, and that there's someone willing to promote them and show them opportunities. And uh, I think that's so important. And it is a perfect segue into the literary moment of the show where I ask you to read something inspiring because I think what you've just told me is so inspiring. We should all, in our own way, find um, an opportunity to connect women together or groups of people together to rise up, and that's what you've done so joyfully. Uh, so <laughs> what did you bring to read today? So there's, I have two things, and, and I mostly changed it because... Um, I actually had the pleasure of meeting um, Chef Jody Adams of Boston. So uh, Rialto, um, Porto is her newest space. And she is this incredible entrepreneur, woman in the industry, chef who, you know, fearlessly realized, and I didn't realize how much synergy until I heard her speak, there was that women chefs were underrepresented and she went fiercely into it and had mentors um, like Julia Child, luckily yeah. <laughs> for her. I have to say, J um, Jody Adams completely changed my mind about women in the industry because before I felt like if you wanted to make it and you were a woman, like, what is the problem? And Jody just sat me down and she was really <laughs> clear that that was very naive. So, so I, she did, she gave us a great conversation. She did this part of the sisterhood project. Um, but the first thing I'll read is kind of what I think I, what I really try to think of every day. And I, I love Forbes quotes of the day are, are some of my favorite things to read. Um, and they really are. They're like, first you're trying to get to what you want to read. And then you're like, Oh, this pop-up is stopping my, you know, my momentum. I feel the exact same way. But then you read it and you're like, Oh, that was really good. So the maybe one it belongs on my refrigerator <laughs> magnet. Damn. Exactly. So the one that kind of, I found probably about a year ago, which to me, I keep going back to is, um, their quote of the day. That says, believe in what you do and think hard about what kind of changes you want your work to make. And I think I was always working towards that, just didn't have the right way to capture it. And that was like, they were speaking to me personally. I was like, oh man, they're talking right to me. Look at this. Is, I'm like, are they like checking me out? And as I 
you know, enter, I'll turn 40 in November. So I'm entering like the new, a new decade of my life and my career. It's the best. I'm so excited. I, I've, I keep telling all my, all the girls of Speedo Cruise start entering 30. I'm like, you guys are going to love 30s. 30s are so great. I'm like, as you get older in the 30s, you start losing all those like crazy insecurities that you just, that were self-made. I'm like, you just like start going forward. And I think like 40 is going to be the best. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, but Jody's um, conversation, she had a big part in it about grace. And um, I thought that was really important because I had never thought about grace in the way that she was speaking about it. And she talked about Sarah Kaufman's book, The Art of Grace. And she actually read this quote uh, to the Speed Rack ladies, which I felt was really important because it tells you a lot about um, just how to handle situations in the best way. Um, so... It was in 1962, um, this Audrey Hepburn was uh, meeting Cary Grant for the first time uh, before they were um, to shoot the film Charades. And she was nervous, like any of us, meeting someone incredibly talented and handsome and (laughs) all those things, but someone who you would admire. And she accidentally... um, spilled a glass of red wine on his trousers. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Which all of us, I can imagine just the fear being mortified at the point. Um, so he, he was really incredible about it. And he, he was very, he just laughed it off, sat through the meeting, dried off. And then the next day he actually sent her caviar and a note and then they filmed the movie. And so he put her at ease. Um, so the, the, in the book, when you read this, the first part, this talks about the epitome of grace. And so she says, um, grace is being at ease in the world. And even when life tosses wine down your pants, <laughs> grace is rather, rather like wine, actually, or better yet, a cocktail. Not the snorter of desperation, mind you, but the balanced, well-made palliative, a jigger of this and a twist of that served up for pure delicatation (laughs) Uh, rather you perceive grace in a whether you perceive grace in a moment of startling compassion um, in Roger Federer's miraculous forehand or even minute by minute harmony of line cooks during the dinner rush witnessing it pleasures the senses brightens the mood and inspires a feeling of ease and so I think like what I love about that quote is it is it's all about how you how you feel how you pick pick yourself back up how you handle other people's failures um and how you communicate that that idea of grace and is something to really hold on to as you go through i love that you found a quote that not only has sort of a spiritual notion because grace at its core but that even in the quote it's connected to the things that you love which are you know the rush of a restaurant and the mix of a cocktail and I, 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 when Jody opened special. this up to me, I was like, wow, I'm like, it makes sense. And I was like, oh, wow, it's just really it is. Because I think when you look at career chefs, career bartenders, uh, anyone in this hospitality industry, you have to love it. You have to really, really love it. And I think as we become more mentors, we have to understand and love raising up the next generation and bringing them along with you. And that was the first kind of inspiration and, and someone who I saw who was really bringing people along for such a long time in an industry. Um, and I think she handles it with extreme grace and polish. And I hope to be her someday <laughs> in that way that way that she speaks about uh, her experiences and, and, and loves what you do. You yeah. know, if you can have a career at the end of the day, you know, if you can say, I did what I wanted to do in my life and I loved every moment of it, that's a good, good, good life. <laughs> and that's a really great place for us to take a break. This is your host, Dana Cowan, on Speaking Broadly, and we'll be back in just a moment. Oh, when you told me I should breathe out to go easy, it's just me now. Everything fell right. Bob's Red Mill has been milling whole grains since 1978. When you mill whole grains, you get all three parts, the bran, the germ, and the endosperm. 
The bran, or the roughage, makes up about 14% of the whole grain. It's the outer skin of the edible kernel. It contains large amounts of B vitamins, some protein, trace minerals, phytochemicals, but most importantly, dietary fiber. The germ is only about 2.5% of the kernel. It's actually the sprouting section of the seed, what's going to grow into a plant. It's usually separated during milling process because it contains most of the fat and therefore has a shorter shelf life. The endosperm is the main energy storage unit of the seed. That's where the growing plant gets its energy before it can start photosynthesizing and making its own. It makes up a huge portion of the grain, about 83%, and it's the main source that's used for white flour. When you make white flour, you get rid of the germ and the bran and just have the white endosperm left. It contains almost all the carbohydrates. It also contains protein and iron and some of the other B vitamins as well. It's kind of what you classically think of when you're thinking of flour. So all that's there when you're milling with whole grains, but when you mill with whole grains, you also get the bran, which is the kind of roughage and gives that, that's what gives that, that kind of color to it. Also gives you extra fiber that uh, helps you to be regular. And you also get the germ, which adds the fat and the flavor, which we all like from whole grains. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Welcome back. This is your host, Dana Cowan, with Speaking Broadly. And my guest today is Lynette Mararo. Did I pronounce that right? Um, Mararo, Marrero. That's close. That's okay. Close. <laughs> and we're talking about the world of mixology and great women-inspiring bartenders. And I am curious, how does one become a bartender. I guess a lot of people they start in college, or you know they start in their parents' liquor cabinet. <laughs> but if someone you you trained under remarkable people, if someone was starting today, not only they wanted to become a mixologist, but you are a brand consultant. Uh, how do you do that? <laughs> so. It's funny. I think what's great now about the cocktail industry and about the hospitality in general is that it has become an actual again, a valued career path. And there are many different outlets and places. I actually came to um, the hospitality industry very unwillingly. Initially, I was I went to Columbia University here in New York. I studied um, psychology and theater, and I come on, this perfect behind the bar. <laughs> what do you mean you were absolutely in training for this position? Absolutely. There's a lot of us. I call us the cocktail crooners. There's a whole bunch of people who are from the musical world who are, ended up in this career, um, and I had never wanted to be the cliche waiter actor. I was like, no, 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 no. I refuse to be that person. That's so cliche. I'm going to temp in offices instead, and that's going to be the, the way I'm going to go. And um, after 9-11, I was actually doing a show in La Jolla Playhouse in California at the time and came back to New York and said, well, I'm never going to an office again. What else can I do? <laughs> um, so figured out, um, I moved into the East Village and look at the trade papers and figure out what jobs are out there. And there was a, a place, a wine bar opening on Clinton Street at the time. And I was like, all right, well, I'm going to walk in and figure out how to get a job here. And I walked in and completely, you know, fudged my resume and lied, which I don't recommend doing now because now oh. it's way more <laughs> people check your references and everything is online. So don't yeah. do it. But I was lucky at the time. <laughs> this was uh, 2001. So it wasn't quite people weren't checking quite as much. And. I, they just asked me a very simple question about grape varietals, and luckily I, I liked wine, so I could spout them off. I was like, oh, sure, yeah, I love Pinot Noir, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, Merlot. And they're like, great, you named three varietals. They're all red. <laughs> awesome. Um, but they trained me and, and uh, taught me a lot about the the industry. So I learned all about wine and it was a global wine list. And I was like, this place, this is great. You know, the hours are awesome and I can I can do this. Um, and then I started working at the Sabar, which was uptown a little bit on Irving place. And that's where I, I got exposure to cocktails. Um, and I was doing cocktail serving there. And it, I, I now that I think about it, I was actually all women who worked there, wow. uh, except for one, one poor kid, Dane <laughs> and the DJs. But it was, it was this crazy group of women all working together. And I had lots of friends who worked with me there. Like I would get my friends jobs, friends who were like going to law school. I'm like, come work here. I'm like, we're making money as cocktail waitresses. Um, 
So I kind of fell into that way and and then started when I went to Flatiron Lounge, I realized I really wanted to be on the bar side and I started auditioning less and less. I still did some shows. Mm -hmm. I took some breaks in between to go do some regional productions. Um, But what I started to do, uh, Julie uh, at the Flatiron Lounge has this program called Flight of the Day. And on the Flight of the Day, there's three different cocktails with Mm -hmm. a theme. Sometimes it'll be rum, it'll be tropical, it'll be classics. Um, so I just started learning all the drinks and that was the first, first thing I knew to be the better cocktail wages. I should really know what's in each drink, but also know the build and know the ingredients That's great because I could tell them something else about it. So I learned all the, all the drinks by that program and decided I really, really wanted to be behind the bar. So I started teaching myself a bit more about the drinks and I would be the waitress who worked the shifts where it was one bartender and one cocktail waitress. These were the Mondays and Tuesdays cause they were a little slower but if happy hour was really busy, the bartender was weeded. He like <laughs> that you'd be serving, you know, the far point and then like my drinks are waiting and I'm like, I've got people who need their drinks. So I started being able to hop around and make my own drinks. Um, and I worked at that time with um, Toby Maloney, oh, who uh, was open, was preparing to open Pegu Club. And he's uh, he actually just won a James Beard last year for the Violet Hour um, and in Chicago and. Philip Ward, who we've already talked about from my well, and he, um, those were the bartenders behind the bar, and they're like, I, you know, Julie, we should really like. Lynette really wants a bartender. And she's <laughs> she's doing it half the time, so I, I got a shift behind the bar, and I uh, just kept going forward in this career. But I think now the opportunities, so the lessons that are that are there are learn and read. Um, read about all the drinks, about all the places, pick up the PDT book, pick up all the, you know, the craft of the cocktail, which is Dale DeGroff's book, which um, started everything. Understand the foundations of where we all came from. Uh, read Sasha Petrosky's Regarding Cocktails. Start with those books to understand the whole picture and then learn those drinks. But learning those drinks is not the first part. You have to also learn how, you know, for a while we had, we'd have all these people who were cocktail nerds became bartenders, but they didn't know how to communicate with people, (laughs) you know? So the, the biggest part is you need to know those drinks and that's secondary, but learning how to communicate with people effectively, how to multitask, make a drink and talk to someone at the same time. How do you learn that? I think just making, you're forcing yourself to work the service station for a while. And, and cause a lot of service stations, if they're uh, not enclosed in a way you have to also talk to two guests while you're rocking out so many drinks and just naturally you have to do it or you know some people are very linear they just know how to like always you know if your mise en place is set yes. and that's the most important make sure everything is done the same way you can be very effective but you know ask if you want to get in this career don't be afraid to take you know the bar back job or to you know I think we're starting to be at a point where you can and just the bar get back does what the bar back in a in a bar is especially in a cocktail bar is anticipating everything that the bartenders needs checks on their ice make sure their juices are constantly topped up and know all the ingredients and and when you're in that space you're actually watching how the bartenders are building so if you're watching how they're making the drinks you can and if you're always anticipating and keeping an eye then you start learning effectively to make the drinks that way and that's and that's where a lot of a lot of people have moved up because you look at it and you're like they they're setting the well every day which is the rail that's in front of you um to make the drink menu so you have an idea of what's going into everything and you watch the the tickets come in and you'll see okay well they want the marigold cocktail you put it here and the bartender's picking up these bottles so it's just about being perceptive i think that's the biggest thing is you know and asking asking people to teach you um be willing to go in on your day off and Mm -hmm. say hey i want to i'd love to just work an hour and shadow you and help you with with the cocktail so i can learn a bit and you know people really want that i think mentorship is something we all have to get into Mm -hmm. ultimately so whether you're the bartender with the bar back the bar back with you know the busser or even you know everyone's mentoring each other or two bartenders working together say hi this is more effective for me so I think communicating um, as an operator I think inviting your entire staff to menu changes is Mm -hmm. really important I see that with a lot of my peers they do that because the whole if you think about the bar as a whole unit Mm -hmm. uh, the servers everyone's involved in making that experience so having the cocktail you know tasting amongst the entire staff you know they do that death and they do the pouring ribbons that's really important so that everyone's on the same page right. uh, and i think that helps build people within your 
your world who all have the same company values. And then that's where you can expand and grow within and, and have a, a pathways for success and for um, people to grow within the company. So you have a tremendous work ethic. Where does that come from? Oh, wow. Uh, my insane work ethic uh, definitely comes from uh, my father. Uh, he, you know, my father was raising four daughters with, you know, him, my parents, four daughters in Brooklyn, New York. Um, my parents um, are Puerto Rican, born on the island. We're all first generation born here. Uh, they moved in, you know, the big Pan Am flights that came over to New York in the um, late 40s, early 50s. My dad was back and forth. Um, so he would go back and forth. And so he would constantly be um, in transition with a lot of his schooling. Um, and so he graduated uh, high school and went straight into the Army and came out uh, 21 and was like, all right, what am I, I going to do? Um, and he... He started driving, um, so at the time in the financial district, this is in the early 70s. So there was like a massive supercomputer that would be driven from downtown Wall Street, from West Street to Philadelphia, so the financial centers that were closed. So my dad was actually a driver of this. I and mean, that's just band. shocking to think of. I mean, for <laughs> it's probably all accomplishable on an iPhone right now. Oh, yeah. I mean, like the little computers in our hands are yes. as powerful probably as these machines. What he drove. Were. Okay. And so he drove it back and forth, and um, they would download it. And instead of sleeping, you know, which would be the logical thing, like, hey, I just dropped off. I'm going to nap. It's going to take whatever hours to drive back. He actually would go inside and would ask questions and look, watch the operators program the computer. So when obviously more of these supercomputers were built um, and the job of, of bringing them back and forth was no longer available, my dad stepped up and said, I can actually program this. And he, you know, always worked really hard throughout our childhood to support his family. And, and you know, so my mom could stay at home and be a stay at home mom. And and that's I, I just think I learned that from him. Just like you just keep pushing, you keep working hard. Um but, you know, I want to find the modern way of that. I think mm -hmm. there's the modern way of that is, you know, work, work to live, live to work. There's a, it's work to live. Don't live to work. You know, uh -huh. you can if it's a passion. Yeah. But I think depending on what, um, I think when I look about the reason why I'm in the career I'm in is because it is a career that is so open to opportunity, creativity, and you can take, you know, you can have opportunities as we were talking about like going into brand work and you can yes. decide if that's for you it's not for everyone not everyone in this career is going to want to be a brand ambassador or um and tell, tell us what a brand ambassador does um brand ambassadors uh full-time brand ambassadors and global brand ambassadors spend a lot of time traveling uh to different cities to um educate consumers and trade on the products that they have so you'll see masters of whiskey uh who know everything about a certain category or people who will be really educated in, in a certain style of, of gin or so they, they, they travel around a lot and they're, you know, it does sound like a great way to <laughs> like see the world and drink at exactly. the same time. Personify a brand. And, uh, paid. and it's fun and it's, it can be very creative, but that also can be for me. I, when I did that full time, but I wanted to create my own brand because there were so many other things that I also wanted to be a part of. So just representing one, one thing wasn't enough. And so I, I think that's where I kind of learned. So my dad worked very much for one company his whole life. And I think what I took from that was that's really valuable. Like knowing how to work in a corporate environment, knowing how to be loyal is really important, but you can do that while you're being loyal and to yourself as well. And you can have that's good a beautiful, business ethics. Yeah, it's, a, it's a beautiful lesson. So um, I'm curious what you see as the future of cocktails. Cause you have seen every, well, from the beginning of the cocktail renaissance to today, every single important sort of micro movement, you'll see it in the competitions <laughs> and you'll see it at the bars and among your friends. What do you think is the next wave in cocktails? So I think the next wave of cocktails, I think we're seeing it right now, is the fact that cocktails are everywhere and they are going from being this mystical thing you don't understand and to something that everyone has access to. So that's a really amazing thing. You're starting to see the growth of 
better ingredients, even going to places that you wouldn't expect them. So looking at uh, some national accounts, restaurants where they're starting to implement using fresh juice, which is mind blowing <laughs> to know that like you could actually go to, you know, an Outback and probably get a margarita with fresh juice. That's, that's that impressive. That is a, a genuine change. <laughs> that is a, a huge change. Um, but you see it more independent bars. I think what the restaurant industry and what the cocktail movement is doing is creating entrepreneurs and spaces. So you're seeing people taking the neighborhood bar and making it exactly what it should be. The new neighborhood bar is a reflection of the community. They're, you know, open and fun and people are going there twice a week to actually have dinner and have a cocktail with dinner. Um, even though it's a cocktail bar, there's food programs and there's, uh, all these great spirits and, and styles of drinks. You know, I look at what, what Ivy opened as Landa in Brooklyn is a very modern, type of bar. Yes, it's serious cocktails, but they have a great food program and people are going in there for dinner and that really wasn't happening in the bars before. It was like, you'd go, you'd have a cocktail, you'd leave, go to dinner, come back and have a cocktail. But now people are creating, making bars their space to, uh, and their environment for community. But you don't think that the, there's necessarily a movement that's different in the cocktails themselves. Because I, I remember, you know, when McDonald's, <laughs> but, you know, oh my goodness, there's shopping at the farmer's market or, you know, really horrible 80s drinks have been reinvented and now, you know, you can get a delicious Long Island iced tea or something something like that. Um, more of a, a, a new trend. I think the, the newest trend would be undiscovered spirits. I think what's interesting is I don't think you see a style anymore because everyone... That that the concept of when people were were doing that, like we're doing farm table, we're doing this and that. I think that um, kind of pigeonholing what your program is is not really happening anymore, and I, I think that's due to all of the communication, all the social media. We can communicate globally now with people all over. So I think what the biggest thing that's happening is maybe newer spirits. So and what are the newer spirits? So you have the piece goes. You have. Um, other brandies like Spanish brandies really coming forward. You're seeing things such as um, Baju and a lot. And what's that? Uh, Baju is a a really odd uh, Chinese uh, fermented uh, spirit <laughs> that can be pretty aggressive. But people are starting to play with these. Uh, on, you see things like Iraq, which is kind of like a rum based um, spirit, and you're seeing just different things come to the forefront. I think that's because bartenders want to play with new things. And so we've seen, you know, the transition to agave spirits now becoming more popular than vodka, you know? So now we're trying to find different things. And I, I think there's also, um, a more playful attitude towards drinks. So I think if there's a trend that that is something that you really are seeing that people are, are really thinking about the whimsical way their cocktails are perceived. And it's part of the social world is that, people are taking photos of these drinks so there is an emphasis on how they're presented different cups what your garnishes look like so i think that would be more of a trend um and then depending on what space you're in people are if you're in a restaurant i think you're starting to see more of that front and back of house really working together to have that fluidity of a program okay you are the perfect person to bring us up (laughs) to date and now i feel equipped so can you tell me your five uh favorite cocktail cities of the world (laughs) and uh if there's a bar in each because i I know that in my life i only travel to eat and and drink um and so i want to know where i need to go to have like a perfect cocktail experience okay so um i'll start with my obviously new york clearly is one of my top but i'm not going to include in the list because that's not fair (laughs) i think you're cheating but that's okay (laughs) um but uh london has become a place of of real inspiration for me um over the last few years we've traveled there uh, for speed rack and you always kind of see new york and london kind of bounce back and forth because i think we started really you know do the cities have a personality like does london have you know it's got amazing well actually i was in uh, Madrid, where they have incredible gin culture. Oh, yes. Does London have a particular style of drink culture, or is it classics? Or I think London is is much more similar to New York that it varies okay. by neighborhood. I mean, they are exceptional at the hotel bar. Okay, um, right. the hotel bars in London so are just. I mean, the Savoy, 
there's still nothing like walking into the Savoy and sitting in the bar there, the American bar where, you know, Ada Coleman, uh, since we're in Women's History Month, created the hanky panky um, <laughs> during Prohibition when she left New York, uh, went to London and and nurtured a bar team there uh, and, and brought cocktails. Um, there's something so wonderful about a hotel bar and, and London does them so well. Uh, so I would say the Savoy for tradition, um, someplace like the addition with punch room would be the modern cool. version of that now, which is really doing fun oh. things. Now I want you to do that in every city. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what's the next city? Uh, Paris. Uh, I think what's going on in Paris is really inspiring. There's, um, I had the great fortune of judging a cocktail competition last year in Iceland and, all of these bartenders came in from different cities, and um, there's so many, but I'll, I'll name one that I think I saw some of the most beautiful uh, cocktails coming out of, one called Mabel, M-A-B-E-L, and um, it's just, a be- the menu's beautiful, the way the drinks come out are beautiful, um, but, but you cannot go wrong. Paris has some of the best bars in the world, and I would say one of the leaders there was Candelaria, uh, which was started by... Um, a woman named Karina Sue and her group of restaurants and bars are phenomenal. Uh, so definitely try and go see there. Um, Chicago. I, I've always been one of those people who is, you know, people are like, Oh, if you know, if you're, if you love New York, you'll want to live in San Francisco. Like they're, <laughs> they're so much more the same place, but I really found that New York and Chicago are way more. I felt at home in Chicago. Like I've never felt anywhere else besides the bitter cold. Which they had a good winter this year. Uh, Chicago is very much, um, a city, a real city, and the food and the drink are exceptional. Um, my first time going there, I won a trip to Alinea, which is oh my gosh, a ridiculous experience to go and have the food and drink there is crazy. Um, and and I'm excited to know that they're going to come to the Mandarin Oriental <laughs> I know, in New York That's, with the Aviary, which is incredible. Um, and I love those bars; I love what they're doing. Um, but I'll have to give the shout out to the Violet Hour because you know I went there and Toby Maloney being my good friend and. Um, saw that bar and, and at that bar I got to meet some of the great new talents in the industry. Mike Ryan uh, was working there. Um, he's now the head of Kimpton Hotels and he is an extraordinary talent uh, in this industry. Um, Kirk Espinal who owns Cure in New Orleans. So a lot yeah. of really talented and they were both chef guys who Toby plucked out of the kitchen and put him behind the bar. So I, just really wonderful people and I and I still think that Violet R is just a, a sexy bar room. <laughs> Texas, which is kind of funny. Is that a city? <laughs> I have to go to the whole, the whole place because Texas is all about honky tonks. Um, but what you have, those are great places. Like every time you're in a Texas bar, there's a vibe. But uh, I'll give a shout out to uh, the city of San Antonio because um, they've been having the the San Antonio cocktail classic every year. So I get to spend a little more time in that city. And um, there's a place called the Esquire Tavern, which is you walk in and it's a really big long bar and it has great food and it does this great job of being unapologetically Texan but also giving really, really great cocktails. So there's something about it that has that saloon vibe. Um, if they just had music, I'd be stoked. <laughs> so I love, I love to two-step. Um, and then uh, I'll go to more recently, I would say, um, of drinking cities that are on my top would be... Um, California, and I'm going to say LA, uh, because I find that what's interesting is for so many years, San Francisco was always the focal point, but what I find that for a new young, younger cocktail city, LA has really taken hold of it and are creating interesting, really interesting spaces and really interesting bars and their, um, their community is really strong. So the, one of the bars that I would say, uh, there that I really love is um, <laughs> Spare Room. It's great because it has a bowling alley and it has that <laughs> hotel bar thing. Um, and it's it's just really fun. And, it's and you know, you go in there and you get great drinks, but the staff is having a really good time and everyone is just really pleasant. But that hotel bar thing is, is really, I, I'm, a, I'm drawn to it. But a great city to get great cocktails and restaurants too. So I really admire that, what's going on. So you've taken us around around <laughs> the world a cocktail tour. I want to go to each and every every one of those. So I have created something called the Hall of Dames mm-hmm. in which I ask a 
my guests to propose a woman to be included to honor their contribution to this industry. And who, what woman would you like to nominate for the Hall of Dames? Uh, I I would like to nominate um, Rosie Shop from the New York Times, and I, the reason why I it's fascinating to me that she's still a bartender in a real old school bar, and her journey uh, through you know from being a little girl and her father was a famous photographer and just her whole life is so fascinating to me, and I find her writing is really beautifully inspiring. Um, her book Drinking with Men is great and I just feel like she has a really wonderful sense about humanity from a bartender perspective even though she writes about a broad range of topics and so I think that she should absolutely be there because um, I just really enjoy her writing that's not it's not cocktail writing but it addresses our industry in such a beautiful way that's the show everybody thank you so much for joining us it's Dana Cowan speaking broadly with Lynette Moraro. I want to thank my awesome engineer, David Tatashore. <laughs> and all of my shows are archived at heritageradionetwork.org. You can also find them on iTunes and Stitcher. I'd love it if you subscribe and give me feedback. Um, check out the Speaking Broadly Instagram. And um, Lynette, I'm sure that people will want to follow you and see some of your beautiful drinks. What's the best place to follow you? Um, find find me on Facebook. It's the probably the best way if you look at... Um, if you want to follow Speed Rack, please go on our Facebook page. You'll see all the amazing women who are competing and, and are the great new voices that are happening in our industry and get on, on board that. Um, you can f- follow me on Facebook as well, and you'll see lots of posts. Instagram is good, too. Uh, I'm drinks at six, and you'll find a lot of my colorful adventures and fun with drink styling, all the things I'm getting to do and explore and see in the world. Um, so... That's great. (laughs) Follow on along, and thank you for joining me. Till next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.